so we as we give a, a shout out to social images too uh <laughs> friends of the show as it were because they've been getting a lot of attention recently weeks away especially so. heck yeah they're superstars what what are you speaking we of in podcast with them we had Gwen on once, remember? Yeah, yeah we did. And we, we did yeah. an office hours with, well, it was called the Context Podcast, but it was an office hours uh, with, with yeah. both of them a couple years ago. And we were like way yeah. ahead of the curve on this, see? Now, what, what are you speaking of in particular, though? Um, there was a, was it Abercrombie and Fitch that just did oh, something yeah. stupid again? Yeah, let's talk up. about that. That's interesting. And I've seen a lot of people attribute the, the breaking of that story with, with them, so. Yeah, do you guys know about this? Which one was that? The padded bras for like preteens yeah. or yeah, seven yeah. to fourteen year olds or whatever their age range was. Yeah, and then basically like they they took they took it down, and everyone yeah. you know, and it was uh, the story was broken by sociological images. Public sociology, man. Yeah. Let's see. I'll put the I'll put the link in here. So what was wrong with the? Um... With the uh, the original advertisement, it just... was a padded bra for seven year olds. <laughs> oh, I actually missed that. Part. <laughs> what don't you get? I kind of wondered why you were asking what was wrong with it. <laughs> Creepy lecherous Arturo. What's wrong with that, guys? Sounds pretty cool. Okay, to be fair, like he cut out, so I didn't know what you guys were talking about. So I was trying to be like sly. <laughs> sure, dude. <laughs> but i'll keep going with it yeah what's wrong with that come on <laughs> anyway so i'm in this position i'll defend it <laughs> yeah so what um what do they what do they actually do what do social images do they just highlighted it and, and brought a lot of media attention to it and they were yeah they down? they posted it saying this is a bad idea and wrong for these reasons and the story broke across the blogosphere if people are still using that term. And then, actually, they didn't even really have to do that. They, I mean, it, I'm looking at it now. It's basically here's here's a picture of the site. Uh, at what age should girls start trying to enhance their cleavage? How old is too young? You know, it wasn't like uh, they posted it saying Amazon should take this down. They just right. post, and a reader sent it in. You know, like they get readers like send them stuff. Constantly. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, that's I, all they had to do, and then it just like erupted because everyone was you know posting it elsewhere and you know blogging about it and stuff but this is a company i mean abercrombie and american apparel are two of the, the fashion companies that flirt with this kind of stuff all the time so it's like i like the term uh, adultification uh, at the uh, bottom of the post there sorry to interrupt you chris i was like sorry. oh that's an interesting uh, new sociological ism <laughs> adultification of children anyway i just was rudely interrupting you go ahead no i was done <laughs> but I is like social image is going to be like this watchdog kind of a site now or is this just you know happenstance that this happened no or, like i just you know? said they just post it like any other post it's not like they made this a campaign they just posted it like anything else and it just sort of people noticed they actually had another one where um they posted something about like grapes um, apparently they, they posted a picture of like Disney is selling like Disney brand princess grapes and they made a little post about like, you know, this, this is kind of like an absurd thing to commercialize, you know, like, do we really, do you need branded grapes? You know, like aren't grapes all the same. And I noticed they had some pingbacks or whatever you call it in the fancy technological language, but like people on like 
Disney message boards were like up in arms about this. Like these crazy people, how dare they? What's wrong with trying to get children to eat grapes? Um, <laughs> so man, I mean, maybe their power is even more uh, far greater than we understand. Oh, yeah. I understand. <laughs> I think they've gotten good too. Just um, the way they do their uh, blog posts now, and I don't know if this has been like always the case, but um, I noticed. I think I said a couple months back that I've used this site for teaching, you know, and told students to look up things, and the students really like it. But I noticed that some of the sites, like, there's a difference between like long blog posts that they have versus kind of shorter ones, and I, it seems like they're kind of sometimes they go for these like provocative questions. And uh, I kind of like that even more because it's almost more interesting reading the comments that come from the responses. I and, totally agree. And, the, you know, it's like in a certain way, I think like saying that there's a right or wrong type of message to put out there. I mean, even though I seven, you know, bras for seven year olds is a wrong thing to do. And I want to clarify that once more. But um <laughs> I think it's it's contrary to like a whole idea of like having a sociological critical thought is to say that there's right or wrong messages in a way, and I think there's a there's a slippery slope that they don't really fall into. But I notice that some of their comments do sometimes. I mean, I don't know if I'm uh, expressing myself in a kind of efficient manner, but I'm just trying to say that like I like how the site doesn't become this kind of police politically correct thought police, you know. Um, framework where they're just kind of saying this is the wrong thing to do whereas they tend to just kind of open up conversations and i think the comments themselves are kind of interesting and my students really liked going through the comments and saying well some people thought it was this some people didn't think it was a big deal some people thought it was you know exploitive of gender dynamics other people thought it was more about race and i thought like oh this is kind of cool for just opening up conversations which i think is like when sociology is at its greatest you know it's like just getting people to think and talk but not really asserting a correct version of what advertisers should or should not do yeah i, I think they actually kind of raised that point because they had a piece on the the j crew ad that caused a big brouhaha where there was a woman um painting her like five-year-old son's toenails um, oh, yeah. This caused like a huge media reaction. If like, you know, Fox News talked about it's pushing some weird transgender agenda or whatever the transgender agenda may be. Um, but they said that it was actually kind of interesting because they talked about that and they said because they've always sort of called out advertising the way it perpetuates all these stereotypes and things like that. And then it was sort of a good. They're, I, I thought they did a really good job of self-analysis there where they're like, hey, we call out advertisers all the time for pushing these stereotypes or not challenging norms. But then, you know, maybe that's the milieu they operate in because, look, this one ad in a very innocuous way slightly challenged a gender norm and look at this firestorm it's caused. Um, and I thought that it's a really interesting kind of point. Yeah, no, that's, you know, it's, it, it's in some ways it like brings the conversation up in a kind of political way and um it moves whatever movement further you know than it was before without the ad like so i think that's i think that's right i mean it's, it's just a way of in keeping the conversation going in a way and you know everybody sees these advertisements and they all have these ideas about it and here's like a forum that people can go to so john are you still there yes oh. <laughs> sorry 
As the only parent on this podcast, how do you feel about the woman uh, painting her son's toenails? I'm not sure being a parent qualifies me to uh, have an opinion one way or the other. <sighs> John, More come on, you. man. You're our expert um, in this I paint my He's been trying I, to deny that that kid is his for so I, long. <laughs> I paint my toenails, <laughs> so what's the problem? That was pretty good. Do you do you as a parent deal with this? Does Chloe ever have some gender bending urges that well, you feel awkward about? Or I guess I guess I will say this. This is an interesting. This is this isn't. I'll try to think of something worthwhile to say here. Um, Please, Chloe, you, you guys have met Chloe. She's a she's a very outgoing, um, friendly, like rambunctious kid, right? I mean, she's not like a you know like a, a girly girl in terms of her personality or anything, but she is going through this princess phase, you know, oh, the princess phase. yeah, she's going through the princess phase. So like if we're at home and we're not like, don't have her dressed in going out clothes on purpose, she's probably playing dress up in one, like, you know, like Cinderella outfit or something. And, you know, it's like all the stuff she wants to watch. It's all the Disney princess movies and everything, you know? And, uh, I don't know, you know, it's not like, uh, you know, Teresa and I are like pushing this on. You're a girl. You must like this, you know. Um, but, you know, she goes to school. She has friends and that's what they all like. And then, and, and, you know, um, I don't, so I don't know. I find myself, you know, like we were watching um, uh, Beauty and the Beast. And I don't know. Have you guys seen Beauty and the Beast in your, you know, adult lifetimes? You know, do you know, basically. I'm familiar with its themes. Well, and I don't know. I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I. Yeah. You know. I know the story, I guess. Yeah. But it's like. uh you know, there are some scenes in there where the beast is like, you know, you know, it's like the beast is an asshole and then we end up liking him. <laughs> and it's yeah. like, no, he's being an abusive asshole. He's not. You don't know. It's not OK just because he's an ugly beast that he no. Uh, so like, uh, yeah, the social images actually had a thing on that. Did there they? Was a YouTube. Yeah, they had this YouTube clip of it's some right. like pop feminist thing. Uh, this woman is always like, you know, analyzing you know popular texts and one of them was beating the beast and she just she just said the same thing she's like here we are teaching girls that in an abusive relationship you should try to change the guy into a prince like <laughs> if he treats you badly you just should try to love him more and and he's only that way because because he's been you know because of something someone did to him or something you know yeah there's a and, reason you know, that the beast is like that it's not like you know i don't know well, John- but go ahead I was going to say, I mean, you mentioned that, you know, so Chloe's really into princesses and, and you mentioned it's not like you're forcing that onto her. I wonder if you ever feel, though, the need to do the opposite. Do you ever feel like, you know, as a sociologist who knows all of these things about gender construction and all that, do you ever feel like you need to push her away from the princess stuff and try to See, offer like an alternate thing? Or This is where I probably, no, no. I mean, I don't, I don't. I'm skeptical of the claim that it's like uh, by watching princess movies now as a four year old, because that's what her friends watch. And that's, you know, she thinks it's fun that that's somehow going to shape her personality when she's like an adult. I just I'm skeptical of that. You know, I mean, I think uh, like I was saying, oh, for like, the record, I wasn't saying like you should. I was just curious if you ever. <laughs> no, felt that desire. no. I mean, I, I will say, you know, like uh, we've watched Star Wars together, you know, I, so I definitely, you know, and she likes it. She likes Star Wars. I, I made Teresa watch it, too, because she'd never seen it. Can you believe that? <laughs> I know. Uh, but the bigger, I think the so bigger parenting question is, have you had her or will you allow her to watch the prequels? 
I think no, that's no, not at all. Those don't exist as far as I'm concerned in this house. Um, but no, I mean, you know, and she liked Star Wars, but, but Mommy didn't. So she was telling everyone that we watched Star Wars and she liked it, but Mommy didn't. Um, so I, I don't know. I just, uh, I wonder about this sort of stuff. I, I'm, I'm very skeptical about people who grow up to be, um, you know, very gender typical or very gender atypical or however you want to look at it. I don't know. I have a hard time thinking that it's necessarily due to like what they watched as a kid. I just don't. I don't. You know, well, I, if it is, it has to be more sophisticated than that because this is kind of. It's usually voiced in that kind of classic media dupes thing where the corporation or whatever media source puts out this message and people just swallow. So, so give me the more sophisticated argument then. There's a bunch of more sophisticated arguments. Give me um, one. <laughs> speaking for teach us, Chris. Teach us. <laughs> give me three. I, teach this, I don't you know. care. Just yes. Um, the classic one is simply that audiences are not passive things, but they're active and they're able to use whatever's presented to them in, in different ways. And it sounds very vague because I think it's an empirical case of how they use it differently. But um, you don't just simply swallow the message whole of whatever is being presented to you. you. People can actively think about it. It gets kind of confusing with four-year-olds, I suppose, where they might not. What are you doing, John? Oh, sorry. It's fine. It's just... <laughs> What's going like on here? Right? No, yeah. I, I'm standing up. So I sort of move around a little bit. All right. Start dancing. Um, but no, it's, it, I, I don't know what four-year-olds can do to make sense of it, but I'm sure they make sense of it somehow. You know, and developmental I, psychologists like emphasize that like around 10 and 12, like kids will just start really thinking about gender for the first time, like in a very serious way. Um, and while, you know, like, little boys and little girls will play all sorts of playground games surrounding the idea of gender. They say that 10 and 12 is really when they start thinking of as an identity and like kids naturally will try to figure out what does it mean to be a boy and what do I need to act to be a boy and girls will, will do the same thing. And so to me, I think like somewhat similar to what you're saying, Chris, is not just like, oh, it's a fabrication of media and, and necessarily culture. But at the same time, I do think that there's like certain cultural ideas that um are undermining of one gender <laughs> and uh and i i do sometimes think that like like specifically this princess one because um i was talking to my primary care doctor about a year ago um about this princess stage because my niece actually is really into this princess stage as well and uh he uh because he was asking, you know, what I've been doing. I was like, oh, I was visiting my niece, and she's really into the princess stage. And he told me about one of his patients who's, like, nearing 20 years old, and she calls herself a princess. And uh, and he was just saying how, like, this kid, you know, like, still thinks that she's, like, a princess in a way, and she thinks that, um, you know, people should, like, treat her like royalty. Like, she's kind of joking, but she's kind of not. But but can you really generalize from that? I mean, I used to run around with a Superman cape on when I was four. It doesn't mean when I was 18 I thought I could jump off buildings. I mean, there but are some, Superman like, there's... Like, is, but there's a sense of agency in Superman, whereas Princess, I just feel like, you know, you're you're cherished for your How beauty. is there no agency in, in someone demanding to be treated like royalty? Like, it's How kind of not- weird, but it... I don't think there's any agency, it's, actually. I think it's like, you know, it's all about asking people to, like, give you 
attention, but I, you're not you don't do I anything. Mean, let me let me like let me clarify here. I don't like the uh the I, I certainly don't think that the portrayal of princesses in Disney movies is the exact kind of role model that I want my daughter or anyone for that matter to grow up aspiring to 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 be, okay? But I also just think that like when you're four I mean, they are very much aware of whether they're boys or girls, though. I mean, it's like a huge thing. Like, she's in preschool now. And, you know, like, when we sit down at the dinner table, if we're not... She makes us sit boy, girl, boy, girl. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> so, like, she'll That's come awesome. sit on the other side of me because then we're boy, girl, boy, girl. <laughs> um, and it's like a fun game, you know? And, and I think there's no question that she likes... You know, I mean, we'll watch Spider-Man, too, though. I mean, she does, like, it's not like she only likes this stuff, but, I mean, there's no question well, yeah. that there's there's this, like, social aspect. I'm a girl. This is what girls like to it. Um, I just think that right. it's, it's very different at four than, you know. Well, I mean, I was going to say, obviously, it's like, you know, as Chris was pointing out, it's not just this media dupes thing. It's not like, you know, girls watch uh, princess movies and then become feminine or whatever i mean i was thinking like myself right like i used to play gi joes with the other two kids my age who lived in my neighborhood you know and we always played gi joes and now here i am this like hippie pacifist who never touches guns you know and so clearly it's not just you know a one-to-one relationship but then those other two kids who played gi joes with me are both in the military um so clearly (laughs) like you know i mean it's it's obvious it's like one you know maybe I, I guess you can't really weight the size of it, but it's one factor in many. Um, I, I mean, I think I think the way but, to look. Sorry, I, were you done? Yeah. Please, I mean, please. I mean, I think the way to look at it is that um, take that example. That's a good example. Um, certain kids are more aggressive than others. You know, certain yes. kids are more prone to solving their problems through force and violence than others. You know, and yeah. if you take a, a culture that um, prizes and praises solving problems through violence and that being the cool manly way to do it, then those kids are going to grow up reinforcing their, their sort of own personalities or tendencies or something. And, you know, other kids may go through that phase when they're kids and experience it and then just grow out of it. But so, I mean, that's, maybe that's one of your, maybe that's the more uh, um, sophisticated uh, Chris way to think about how these things interact is that it's not that my daughter's going to watch princess movies and grow up to at 18 think that she's a princess and that Prince Charming should come rescue her. Uh, But if that is kind of, you know, that's, God, I don't even, that's, that's actually a lot harder analogy to draw to what an adult princess is like than an adult GI Joe, you know? (laughs) Um, I I just think though that cultures routes, I think it's natural for humans to distinguish themselves in terms of sex and like have gender roles, but I I think cultures does a whole lot of routing about what, but what how do you route that aggressiveness? How do you route that notion of femininity? And and I think we have these cultural ideas of the princess, for instance, that I think is like n- not one of actually doing anything. It's not one of like go out and accomplish something, but go make yourself beautiful and be a prize for somebody and be cherished and and you are special because of this inherent goodness that you are and and i and it's not i i I don't think it's actually a very constructive message for girls and and I'm, i'm i was trying to say like i don't necessarily believe that you should be gender neutral with your kids but i do think that like you know i was wondering about that watching my niece is like wow like superman playing gi joe those things seem like 
yeah, of course nobody's going to grow up thinking that they're Superman, but there's this idea that, that they can do things, that they're going to go and accomplish things. And I think that's like a subtle message. And I'm not saying that everything that's feminine is weak and doesn't have agency, but I do think our culture does like cherish certain notions of femininity that aren't very active. Um, and I mean, I think that's what's going on today. It's like a lot of people are revisiting these ideas and questioning them. Um, and I, and I just see extremes. Like, I feel like I see, I've been to parties where people have asked for me not to give a princess or like not show anything pink because they want everything to be gender neutral. And I think that's a little bit weird because, you know, the kids is going to be kind of confused in my mind. But at the same time, I, I do, I just, this princess thing is always kind of, um, just there's something about it that I don't know. Like I, I, I don't think it's wrong that you know your four year old is excited about it, but I do do think that like it is something to be cautious about if it becomes the one thing. Sorry. Yeah, well, I mean, it's like I, I think the the tortured point I was trying to make that didn't come out very well was like the context matters, right? So like I really played with GI Joes, but I was raised by more or less peacenik parents, right? Who, as I grew, taught me that you know, violence is not a way you solve your problems and that like aggression, you know, it, it, it's fine, but you know, you need to deal with it in, you know, responsible ways and things like that. And just like, I'm sure John's daughter, you know, as she grows, John will probably teach her that she can do things and shouldn't just wait for a man to come along and do everything with her. And as such, she will probably not at age 20 feel, think she is a yeah. princess waiting for a prince. I, I don't know. I guess I shouldn't speak for John's parenting style. But yeah, I mean, it, this the media is very powerful, right? But obviously, it's in context, right? And so, um, like you said, it, it might be a little too far to like ban all princess things for children and say, you know, we can't do this. But you can see how it would have a big impact if you didn't have, say, you know, a, a parent who is a sociologist who then says like. Well, yes, princesses are fine, but that's only one view of the world, and you should be able to do these other things, and da-da-da-da-da. I would just give my four-year-old daughter a bunch of readings. Yeah. And then see what kind yeah. of... Things. Yeah, I just... I'll like, give my... As soon as my kids are four, it's just R.W. Connell for every yeah. holiday. There is another take on this, which is going to be very unpopular, but it's... Tell me if it makes any sense at all. The whole... I will older person as princess thing, the 20 year old woman or whatever it might be, a woman in her twenties, let's say mm -hmm. who kind of pulls that princess line mm -hmm. in a way it could be sort of empowering, like problematic, problematically empowering given that the context is very messed up, but it's a woman making, you could read it as a woman making a demand for the kind of privilege that men already enjoy which is that you have to recognize the authority and legitimacy and power of my position and I don't have to do anything to earn that. It, I or think though it's 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 an emancipation that is cloaked in complete weakness because I in my mind it's like there's no agency. She's just looking for somebody to take care of her in a way that like you're giving that person all the power. And I'm I don't not... agree with that because all the princess stuff that I've encountered that's aimed at teenage women and higher is it's not the same kind of, it's not a Disney princess. It's uh, sort of almost. Chris, a, just to clarify, how much princess stuff aimed at <laughs> teen and higher women are you exposed to? <laughs> just out of sheer curiosity. I have these other jobs where I'm marketing <laughs> these 
products. No. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't mean to make a mockery of your position. Um, no, I'm, I'm in a sense asking people to make a mockery because it's just fun to play with. Um, I guess not enough to really say this, but just casually, and the way it got articulated through girl power in the 90s and the early 2000s, it was kind of an example of this. Um, where like it was Spice Girls kind of? And other variations of that, which were sure. terrible, but maybe they did something. Um, it wasn't just that the woman doesn't do anything. They actively pursue that role and make people recognize it and fall into it. And you hear about it a lot, especially, and there might be a decent amount of sexism going into it, about women in relationships trying to, you know, it's always training the, the partner in the relationship to treat them as a princess and so on and so forth. I, I, I just think that the, the, advice there's a like that, That's very common. Okay. Was that our truth? I, I just think that there's like a subtle message of the princess idea is there's, there's like this, this cattiness and this like you need to embody this idea that you are the most beautiful. And this idea that you are the most beautiful inherently is one that – makes you antagonistic with other women, you know, sure. because like it, it, then there, there's a battle and then there's just like these unrealistic expectations that your partner then needs to say that you're the most beautiful person every day. And I just think that like that's an unrealistic thing, you know, and, and it's a really easy thing for guys to say and not mean. And I think, you know, uh, it's it's Boy, you're getting in trouble. I, I, I was gonna say, is this a problem you're having at home, <laughs> Is this what is this what's coming out in our? No, well, I mean, I, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll say that I've been in relationships where I feel like these women, I, I want to say like high maintenance women, and I would say that's not the relationship necessarily I am in, but where like they were impressed by, you know, going out to a really fancy restaurant and then, you know, showing like jewelry that you bought for them and just like really needing that kind of like you're you're better than everybody else and i just like at some point i just like this is this is not a person i'm really wanting to be well, with that much because i don't really believe that she is the best of everything in the world and like she doesn't she she shouldn't need to like need that kind of validation constantly and i feel like i'm in with a partner who i love and like i respect her as a partner in a way like i don't feel like i need to constantly um tell her that she's the most beautiful of everybody else. I mean, I, I don't know if I'm, it, this is like getting too personal, but I, like, I've seen that in my past relationships. It was like, wow, like what a really kind of childish, I mean, sentiment. Everybody wants to be beautiful and, and, and the best and the best of everything, but who really believes that as an adult that they need that? And I feel like that's like something we tell women that's really undermining that like it's this ideal type that they'll never reach, you know, because, you know, it's not possible. Uh I was going to say, yeah, kind of what you're highlighting, like the difference between the sort of chauvinistic, like put women on a pedestal versus like treat women as an equal human being. And there, and there's like, uh, I, I would argue a fairly significant difference between the two, even though the, the pedestal idea can, sounds empowering in a way. Um, but yeah, it's, it's still... That's precisely it. It sounds empowering in a way. And I said, it's, it's problematically empowering. Given the context of women being devalued, that's a move that one can make to feel empowered. It has bad repercussions and justifies a lot of the, the processes and ideas that are putting the, the devaluing there in the first place. 
but it's it's a it's a power move in a bad situation. And I'm not surprised that it keeps happening over and over again. If you constantly tell women that these are the things that matter um, for attracting men or for feeling self worth, then eventually they're going to take advantage of that in some way. Yeah, but I'll be the anti sociologist here. Um, Please, and Final. that in that uh, I mean I think a lot of this some some people are needy. Some people are very independent. Some people are very cooperative and need to work with others and feel like, you know, people just are different and have different relationships that make them happy and make them work. And this is the classic, like, liberal trap, I think, is that we want to say that the, the sort of, this sort of traditional uh, sort of woman as dependent on man, man as head of household model uh, is, 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 is not only should there be alternatives to that, like, my my little girl shouldn't have to grow up to be like that, but no one should. So, like in every relationship, it should. And and I think like that's the problem is that like the the liberal critique of that kind of relationship is, um, is that well, look, everyone should have a right to you know couples should have a right to negotiate I, I their own relationships, so. right? Yeah, they should absolutely. But, no, they but have no, no, a choice. No, no, no. Let me finish. They should have a choice, <laughs> and I'm not saying that you're you're making it sound like we're saying there's a, an ideal type of relationships that. It's based on egalitarianism, and I'm just saying that might not fit everybody, but everybody should have that choice. Yeah, I, I know. I like but, that John's but, trying to be the non-sociologist, and then you brought up ideal types. <laughs> no, I mean, my point is just that, you know, uh, you can know people who... I, I, I just think some of this, some of this is it's really hard to take a case and attribute it to socialization, a particular person, and attribute it to their socialization or the stuff they watched growing up or whatever. And, 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 and it's also really difficult. It, it puts us in a tough position um, because the sort of, uh, I'm not saying this very clearly, but the point is the liberal ideal is that everyone gets to make their own life and negotiate their own relationships so that they can live like they want. But um, that sort of rules out accepting certain, you know, uh, well, uh, what if what if in this it works really well to have the the woman be um sort of demanding of you take me out you buy me jewelry and 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 that works out well but then maybe in other parts of the relationship she actually wields a lot of control you know like we don't know it's complicated so yeah. and it's and it's certainly hard to to say that it's like that because she watched princess movies you know like relationships are like that people manipulate each other and sometimes they're accepting of that in in many directions and it's complicated sure. you know and it's just, it's just really hard to, to, I mean, and maybe you can say that princess movies aren't a cause of that, but they at least, you know, maybe, maybe the problem isn't so much that, look, this problem would go away if every kid watched a different set of movies as, as a child, but it sort of glorifies certain kinds of relationships and, and, and not others. And that can maybe cause a problem. And I don't know. I don't know. Well, I, I just like the social images thing. I guess I'm trying to say it's a, it's a, it's a way of talking about this issue, you know, about princess things. Maybe it's not the sole causal mechanisms of like bad relationships, but I do think that like these, there's ideas that you get as a kid that I think continue to have impact in your adult relationships because it's the idea of relationships, you know, that you get. But even if it's not the sole causal thing, it's like a way of talking about these undercurrents of like, well, we seem to think that like our relationships are just based on our own personality. But, you know, sociologists would say, well, there's these more broader 
discourses that we latch onto and ideas about relationships that we latch onto that play out in our own lives. And I, I do think that like, if I had a daughter, like one of the things that I would, you know, would try to uh, convey to her is like, listen, you're not a little princess, <laughs> you know, when you're like 20, you know, like you're not the most, the best of the best. And uh, is everybody still there? Uh, I am. I think Jesse cut out. Jesse. Yeah. So that's what I'm saying. It's like, you know, like there's like the daddy's little girl kind of yeah. thing, you know, like I, I just I, like, okay, if my daughter needs to like use her sexuality in as an adult to get her things, you know, that maybe that's what she needs to do. That's fine. But I guess I'm just not necessarily going to be saying that she's daddy's little girl and she's like a, this little bratty little thing that just needs to be taken care of. It's like, that's, I'd rather not convey that message. I mean, um, yeah. I mean, and, and I, just, I, I, as a, as a parent, I agree with that. <laughs> I mean, I guess my whole point is that I think, uh, kids have strong personalities from a pretty young age. And that's something that sociologists tend to dismiss. And you know what? Like my daughter will watch princess movies, but you know what? She's a very independent kid. And I have no doubt that when she's 18, if she wants something, she will go out and get it. She's not going to be like waiting around for some guy to bail her out, you know? And and I say that now, and she's four years old, and that's that's clear, you know. I think uh, it's, it's just it's just more complicated. I think. Here, let me let me add just a second. Okay. So, John, you uh, you got some stuff you want to talk about with the Kindle and the eBooks and the library lending. What's up with that? Why, yes, Jesse. We've talked about ebooks before. Um, I remember we did like one of our uh, episodes where we talked about um, ebooks and sort of academic publishing and teaching. Um, but there's this whole other, probably larger, more important angle to it <laughs> of what ebooks mean for um, sort of public knowledge and, and, and whatnot, right? Can you guys mm-hmm. both hear me okay? Yeah. Okay. Yes, sir. Um, so anyway, this last week, the big announcement was uh, Amazon announced that they were going to start partnering with one of the bigger library lending um, companies out there, right? So I don't know if you guys have ever looked, but a lot of public libraries have partnered with um, Overdrive is their name, right? So the Johnson County Public Library that I that is right down the street from me, I can go to their website and I can access the entire Overdrive catalog of eBooks. And I've been like going through these things like crazy. You know, it's great. You know, basically, uh, you can check them out. And instead of like a physical copy, they have so many that they can loan at a time. Um, so you sort of add yourself to the wait list. And then when it's your turn, then you can download it. And then you get it for seven. You can, you can choose like one week, two week, three weeks. And then it stopped working. Right. Interesting. Um, so that's the deal the way it works. Um, right now, uh, the Kindle isn't compatible with this. Technically. Um, So you have to have another reader. So like if you had like a Sony e-reader, I think the Barnes & Noble um, Nook works with it too. But basically Amazon announced that they're now going to be partnering with OverDrive. So all of this stuff will now be available for Kindle too. So there's a bunch of things here. I don't know where exactly to get started, but there's a lot of elements. Um, The first is that let's assume that this is the new model for libraries. And is this okay? right? Um, Because on the one hand, the thing that's great about libraries is that you can go to a library and be the 500th person to check out a book that they bought in 1972, 
<laughs> you know? Um, and yes, you have sort of deadlines, but it's a physical book. You know, you can, uh, you know, uh, take it home, you can read it, you can loan it to other people. There's, there's this like physical copy to pass around and the physical copy has to go back to the library. And if you could sort of imagine this universe where there is an unlimited number of copies of a book where when you, when you checked out a book from the library, instead of handing you a physical book, they took it back and they put it in this machine and then they out popped a complete identical copy of the book and they handed it to you, you would wonder, why do I have to return this at all, right? <laughs> I mean, there's a cost maybe in making the book, the extra copy, but, you know, a due date doesn't make much sense. Yeah, um, that's true. And that's basically what you're doing with ebooks is that when you download a copy of the ebook, you're just downloading a copy of the file. It's not yeah. even a big file usually. Um, and then they sort of built in this like time bomb into the file where it won't work after a certain date. Yeah. And you can, I mean, I guess I just don't, the, the ebook model for, pub, that makes sense for, for publishers. If you want to sell an ebook, uh, you don't want John to be able to download it. And then just like email a copy to Jesse and email a copy to Arturo. And then you guys both have perfect copies of the book. You can, you know, this is the same thing with music. Like we've, it's not like this is a new idea to anyone. Um, you know, there's zero marginal cost for each additional ebook made, right? Uh, so how do you charge for ebooks? You know, you've got to have people who are willing to pay in some way or another. And with libraries, it's especially complicated because what does the library pay? You know, I mean, Technically, a library could just buy one copy of a you know ten dollar ebook and then distribute it forever to anyone, and it would it would cost them no more. In fact, the overhead of the system that keeps track of it to preserve the publisher's right to charge as much as they want for it actually is what makes ebook distribution so damn difficult, right? Um, so anyway, there's a lot of different interesting angles to this, but I guess. Amazon Do you think though, in a way that like the idea of ebooks is a way of like selling to an older generation i.e. us that have grown accustomed to this idea of a book but they they call it an ebook but essentially it's just you know electronic mediated no, messaging no it's 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 not about the audience at all it's about the producers it's about the fact that there's an industry that was built on around books uh, around printing books and shipping them and yeah. making money on the transfer and exchange of physical books and then now they're stuck in a world where all that stuff isn't needed anymore. And there is, and you know, and there is, there are things that publishers do. I mean, they edit. <laughs> That's really right. important. Editors are needed, you know, even great writers, they need editors, you know, I mean, and there's, and, and it costs to produce things. I think authors should be paid to write books. You know, there are like real challenges here, but the business model of publishers is built on a totally different kind of, kind of world, you know? Yeah. Um, well, what I was trying to say though is that, like, maybe the idea of books will just vanish in a generation or two. Like, it's just it's an archaic way of framing, like, this idea of an essay or a long-winded, edited essay that has several segments to it. But the ebook is really just a way of, like, bringing the technology in the language that our generation can understand it. And what you're saying, the industry that's been built around books can try to sell it but ultimately it doesn't really make any sense to like well yeah here's this medium of making books more accessible but we'll put this time bomb element to it where you can't use it anymore where i was like well, what's the point of that um I, that, that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me like it, to me it seems like they should just reinvent the whole industry and just say you know here's libraries maybe physically won't exist anymore but maybe there'll be a library of content that you pay a monthly subscription for 
and you can access as much as you want. Um, and, you know, the more you download something, the maybe, you know, part of your fees goes to that author and maybe if... Yeah, that's no actually, yeah, that's actually been a serious proposal, like, I know with music, at least, where, um, you know, basically, you sort of create a exchange, I guess, where anyone can share and do whatever they want with music. And, you know, they, they sort of figure out who's listening to what and what's the most popular and reward royalties to artists in proportion with their sort of share of that pie or something. And you could see how that would work with, with, with authors and books too. Yeah. Yeah. But I think, I mean, there's, there's two questions here and this is what always bugs me about this uh, is that there's, there's what can we do to preserve the publishing industry? Right? Like, um, Oh my God, you're right. This is a real problem. Authors need to get paid for their work. And, and there's a valuable role for some kind of publishing like entity in the world. How should we how should we pay them? As if this is our problem. Why is this my problem? Right? This is the publishing industry's problem. If their business model has fallen apart because of technological change, that's their problem. They're not entitled to my assistance in preserving their business model, right? Um, because here's the real question: technology changes, new possibilities arise. What are those new possibilities, right? So like I I I, I posted, yeah, I think I sent you guys the link to um uh, Ziva Vadyanathan, who's a, he's not a sociologist, but he's very, he could be a sociologist. He might have, a, I, I don't know, communication studies kind of guy. And he's um, got a new book called The Googleization of Everything, and it's getting a lot of attention. But in particular, one of his arguments in there is a critique of Google Books. Um, so do you know what Google Books are? Yeah, I bought a couple, actually. And I have read some free ones. Well, not like the Google Books they sell, but they're, all right, sorry, so like Google Books, um, they decided to set out, Google said, we're going to scan every book ever, ever mm -hmm. published. And then not, not, not like distribute it, not like take brand new books off the shelf, scan it in and give it away for free. But like for searching purposes is what they were trying to go for, you know, so that they have every book ever just for sort of indexing it, sort of like how they index the web, right? And it's, I, I am not an expert. And it's a very complicated case. So I don't want to go too far into it, but sort of his... Uh, you know, uh, Ziva's critique of it is who asked you, you know, like who asked, you know, Google's uh, motto is we want to be the, you know, index all the information in the entire world. And his is like, why is that your right to do that? Right. That's not your information to have, you know, um, and mm. being sort of very critical of this idea that, you know, Google comes out and pitches things in these very open, democratic, great things like, ah, oh, we want to have a a database of all the books ever so that anyone out there can have access to them. But that's not true. They're Google. They're not just doing this out of the good of their hearts. They have a business model behind this. They have a way to make money off of this eventually. And, yeah. you know, we should be a little suspicious of this. So, like, um, I, there's a... Have you guys heard of Me Media Matters, the podcast with Bog McChesney? You know Robert... I have. You know McChesney, of course, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he has a uh, podcast called Media Matters, and, and he was on it talking about the book and he said, I actually wrote it down, right? I wrote down what he was talking about because he, he was talking about his sort of alternate vision of Google Books, right? And, you know, his goal is to have every 12-year-old growing up in South Africa in 50 years get the exact same quality of information and quantity of information as a 12-year-old in the U.S. or, you know, wherever today, right? And we actually can do that. Like, there's no technical reason that's not possible, Right? It's only a political problem, you know, and for so long, access to information is has been a gatekeeper for 
maintaining inequality for um, sort of uh, sort of maintaining power divisions. And we don't have that. Like there's no justifiable reason for that from a technological perspective, right? Information is so cheap and free and easy to distribute that there's no reason that only certain segments of the world population should have access to this book, right? Mm -hmm. It's crazy. Um, but the only reason it exists is because we're so we're subservient to the business models of the publishers that made those books, right? And you yeah. can say that's their right, that's fair, whatever. Maybe you can. Um, but we always lose sight of that. People get so hung up in like trying to invent alternate business models for publishers as if it's our problem, you know? Um, and th that's just irritating. And that's the whole thing with this Amazon lending thing is you have to be, I'm very suspicious of Amazon here. Um, because right now, I mean, do either of you have ebook readers? I have it on my computer. Okay. So you, you have, I mean, every, Jesse, no, no. Okay. I mean, I don't, I don't deal with that kind of thing. I get, I have a Kindle and I really like it. Um, but I get questions a lot about whether or not people should buy it. And I don't always know what to tell them because right now the ebook market is where the MP3 market was a couple years ago, right? Like where... If you have a Kindle, you can only read stuff from the Amazon Kindle store, basically, right? Mm -hmm. um, and if you go and buy a Barnes & Noble Nook and you want to buy a book, if you say you bought a Kindle and lost it, you can't replace it with a Nook and get all your old books back. You're stuck. You got to stick with the Kindle from there on out and vice versa. You know, you've got a bunch of these um, homogenous, isolated um, stores that wrap their EPUBs and DRM that can only be decoded and played on their devices, right? Right. This is a mess, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's what... Go ahead. I, I got this whole rant, but I, I've been reading a lot about this lately, so my mind's been kind of on this. But, like, the thing about this sort of digital frontier, or however you want to describe it right now, that gets me is now <clears throat> it's not just that producers of content want to sell you something. They then want to control how you can use the thing they've sold you. Like, the point of... Sale is changing so much because it used to be like I'd buy a book and uh, that book was mine in, in perpetuity, right? Like our transaction, me and you know, even Amazon, right? I buy a physical book from Amazon, me and Amazon, our deal is done after I bought that book. If I want to lend that book to John, I can lend that book to John. If I want to lend that book to Arturo, I can lend that book to Arturo, right? But now they want to control that, right? They want to say, like, okay, you bought that book, but you can't lend it to anyone else. Right, you can't let someone borrow that book. You can't make a couple of copies of pages of that book and let somebody else see those. Right, like you still have to deal with us in that transaction. Yeah, and they're trying to change where the point of transaction is happening. I and, think uh, I don't cotton to that kind of logic. Here's the, I think here's the logic. It's not it's not that. It's that when you buy a book, you're buying a physical copy of the book. You're not buying the book as a string of words that make up that volume of work. Just like if you buy a CD, you're buying that physical medium that that music is encoded on. You're not buying the rights or anything to the music on there, right? That's the artist's, yeah. artist's property. So yeah. when you go into the, the digital sort of age, they're saying, well, you're not just... You, when you bought a book, you weren't buying the book. You were buying a license to read the book in on those pages, <laughs> you know and now they're saying you're buying a license to read this copy of the book and because it's not a physical copy you know we you know we can play by different rules it's more direct you know in some way um but 
people don't feel it that way. Like that, that's not the way people have ever thought of it. That's not the way people have ever thought about their books or their music or the digital downloads. You know, I think that's right anyway. I don't know. Um, exactly. Well, I mean, that's my point. Like they're trying to like, they're trying to redefine the point of sale and what you're allowed to do with what you've purchased. And I think, um, I don't know, maybe if it's my libertarian streak or just my ardently pro-America streak, but it's like, once I've handed you legal tender for something, it is my right to dispose of that as I see fit. Like, it is no longer your right to tell me how I can use this product I've purchased, right? Like, the if I buy Procter & Gamble toothpaste, they have no right to tell me that I wow. can't put that toothpaste on somebody else's toothbrush, so, right? Well, but, but, but it's intellectual property. I think that's the... The trick of it is like a business person might say like the only way that we made that book affordable for you is on this idea that there's an intellectual property inherent in that property and that really the cost of a book is really expensive because you have to pay an author, an editor for over a year. So you know, a book might cost $100,000 and you can't afford to pay $100,000 for this intellectual property. but if we sell it as a vehicle that like you know you can carry this intellectual property and you just pay a little bit of it then we can make up all the costs of producing that said book and i think that's why there's this kind of freakiness to it like well all of a sudden the physicality of the book is no longer important and so we don't have any control of who reads or who doesn't read it so I don't know, like I hear what you're saying, John, about like, oh, why is it our problem? And you're right, it's not our problem, but how are people, how is this going to be a viable activity for people to do? Yeah, no, no, I pay for it. I get that. It's just, it cracks me up that people like you and I always have discussions about this and we always end up getting stumped on how to solve their problem for them <laughs> instead yeah. of focusing on like, what's the real potential here? What's actually at stake? It's not whether or not I'm going to be able to read the new, um, you know, whatever book that comes out next week that's on the bestseller list for free or whether I'm going to have to pay for it or whether I'm not going to be able to read on my Kindle. That's, that's small potatoes <laughs> compared to like the larger issue of, this is like the future means of distribution of information for our like world. That's huge. And, you know, if the publishers that are in business today can't figure it out and go out of business, so why is that my problem? You know, why should that hinder what I can talk about as the potential power of these new mediums? You know, that's I mean, I guess that's what I'm getting at. But I mean, so for example, right? Um, this is this. Okay. So I was talking about the state of eBooks today where you buy a reader and then you're sort of stuck with that reader store. That's not entirely true, right? I just, if you've been listening carefully, you've noticed that I said my library has overdrive. Um, it subscribes to the overdrive, uh, library lending thing. I have a Kindle. Well, gee, John, how are you reading these books? I'm downloading them, uh, decrypting them and removing the DRM and saving a copy that has no DRM on it that I can read on any device I want. And it doesn't expire. Oh, blasphemy. But, you know, you know, but here's the thing, though. I have a Kindle. I pay taxes to my library. They are offering these books that I would like to read. This is what it takes for me to read them. You yeah. know, um, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I don't think it would be right for me to take those and email you guys and say, here, you go read them too now. Or uh, put them on the internet for anyone to download. Like, I think that's, 
that's a different question. But it's like, should I have a right to read the, the, the content that I can legally get access to? Or should I be told that, no, I have to go buy a Sony e-reader, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's... Yeah. I, I don't mean, know. But that... here... And then, like, I just want to, like, add, like, like one... Like, like, this is the art... Let's look at the music case. And then this this will sort of get my, my point out. With music, this was the way it was a few years ago. And then now notice that Amazon sells MP3s with no DRM iTunes sells uh, uh, their music files with no DRM. And this isn't a problem with music anymore. Somehow the music industry got through it, right? And everyone just kind of assumes that this will happen with eBooks, right? That this is just a passing fad. Eventually the publishers will figure out that more people reading their stuff is more valuable than protect- protecting themselves from whatever sliver of negative uh, you know, uh, income they'll lose by people who happen to distribute it illegally, right? Eventually they'll figure that out. But I don't think that's going to happen. Or I'll be provocative and say I don't think it's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't think that's going to happen because Apple was the big player in music, right? They had the iTunes store, and the the music industry was scared to death of Apple, right? And the, the power that Apple could wield and control their industry and their fate. So they went to Amazon as soon as Amazon opened an MP3 store, and they totally agreed. Oh, sure, we'll give you DRM-free. Fine. Anything, anything to dis- to, to distinguish yourselves from Apple in the marketplace to to take some of that power away from Apple, right? And it worked. Or at least eventually they caved in and gave Apple the DRM-free stuff too. But Apple was never in the music business to sell mu- for mu- to sell music for music's sake. Apple wanted a music store so that it could sell iPods and later iPhones and iPads and and whatnot, right? That's why Apple created the music store is cuz they had the iPod but there was no easy way to get music on it, so they created they went about and created the store so that people would have this clean link between I can buy an iPod, I can buy music, and I can listen to it. So the music was just, uh, you know, subsidizing the the purchase of the iPod. Apple never cared about the DRM necessarily. They didn't care. If people could get downloadable music, great, right? Amazon does care. Amazon views this as a preemptive action against the decline of publishing bo- of published paper books, which is how they've a big part of their business. That's, you know, they sell everything now, but books is still like what they're known for, right? This is a preempt, preemptive step in that, saying yeah. we need to get into ebooks and we need to own that market now. They're all about selling the books. The Kindle, they sell at a loss from everything I understand and hear about, especially as the price keeps dipping. They don't care about the Kindle. They're selling the Kindle so that people will buy ebooks. So the question is, why are they doing this? Why would they make deals with libraries? They'd much rather have me buy a nine ninety nine copy of the book from Amazon.com than to go to my library and check it out for two weeks. That's yeah, because rather... they see the writing on the wall, right? They just think that like, whoa, there's this massive change coming. We got to be ahead of it and define the terms of this change. Just like the exactly. Google they, they... scanning all the books, they want to be ahead of the change and, it, and put their label but it's, on it. It's more specific than being ahead of the change. It's very specific. It's they want to be the ebook platform. They want to own the market. They want everyone to have a Kindle so that buying an ebook means either going to Amazon.com and buying it or maybe, you know, going to your library, whatever. But they want to completely crowd out any reason that people have for buying a Nook or buying a Sony e-reader or buying whatever other e-reader there is. They want to own the market. Okay, and then what? And like, I agree. Like, you ask me what ebook reader to buy today, buy a Kindle. They're great. I love my Kindle. But like, what's the impact of the Kindle owning 95, 100% of the ebook market? Um, what's the impact on the state of ebooks as a way of distributing knowledge, 
right? I mean, this does get back into the larger question of it. This is this is why, like, is it ever going to come to where ebooks just drop DRM? Maybe not. Not if Amazon's the the dominant player in the market and the DRM suits them just fine. You know, people just assume that'll happen. Um, I don't know. I'm I'm just. Are we too young to make a comparison between beta and VHS? kind of uh, analogy because wasn't there like issues about like wow there's this thing that you can actually videotape tv now and you know will we even have why will people even go to the movie theaters and there was like a debate about like should you buy beta or vhs right like i just feel like when i was like young you knew that one kid who had the beta yeah. machine yeah our neighbors had beta it. it was weird yeah yeah <laughs> yeah but like you hear that like oh it was a better there's... technology it was cheaper but yeah. vhs just won that yeah War, right? okay so what's the connection to this well thing? isn't it like from that they may maybe business people learn that you just have to be ahead of the game you don't have to have the better product but you just have to control more of of the market than the uh, than the competitor and you just have to be you have to be uh, proactive you can't produce a better product you have to just control you know where you think the market is going and so maybe that's what they're doing they're just we don't know if a Kindle is better than whatever other reader there is out there, but we just have to sell people the idea that Kindle is eBooks. Yeah. Um, no, I think that's and- right. I think that's totally right. I don't think there's a great mystery to that. I think <laughs> the point is, what does that mean, though? I mean, like, what's the impact of that? Right? Because the, the, another popular example of that is Apple is Mac versus PC, right? Um, I mean, the Macintosh came out in 1984. And had basically a 10-year lead on Windows in terms of interface. I mean, it wasn't until Windows 95, really, like 11 years later, that Windows PCs actually sort of had parity with Macs in terms of the interface. But Apple lost. You know, how did they lose, right? It wasn't because they didn't have the better product. You know, it was because Windows had a model to dominate the market to where all these different, every different PC vendor out there could compete with each other to sell the cheaper PC, and they all ran Windows, Apple just had Apple, you know. Yeah. Um, well, there's but like, a weird well, and but what was prisoner's the dilemma? You know, where it's like if you have a, a particular device, and do you want to make it compatible with everybody, or do you want to just make it just so that you can do use your own consumer products? And if if you are too quick to make it universal, then your competitors can go, "Well, that's great that you're universal, but we're just going to keep it." Our own Apple brand products can only be used with Apple products. Like it just seems like there's a a point where everybody needs to create their own, you know, brand centric devices. And at some point, there's a tipping point where that just doesn't make sense anymore, or it becomes kind of destructive. But I, I think there is something about adapting too quickly, you know, of, of being universal from just from the start, and then your competitors just kill you. See, I um, think can I can I can I interrupt? Be yeah, a jerk. I think you're focusing too much on the business. Pro- this is the point I keep coming back to. Who cares about the business models? Who cares about the strategy that companies have to take to succeed in the marketplace? <laughs> That's exactly my point. These conversations always go in that direction. And I don't care. I'm saying what's the cost of having a Amazon dominate the market for eBooks when that the way they've set up the market dictates that you know, you've got all these agree, you know, horrible terms on the distribution of electronic print material, right? That's really bad, I think. There's danger there for, you know, all of our society. 
I don't care whether or not it's a smart business. You know, I'm just saying, do you, do you get the distinction I'm trying to make here? I, I don't because we're, actually, we're not business. We're not business people. We're, I know. But at the end of the day, it's, it's only business interest is dictating these things. And I, and I think every company tries to dominate and eventually that, that domination gets broken up either by like, you know, some federal court ruling that that's a monopoly and you can't do that. Or, you know, a new product comes out and it completely undermines something. So I just think there's always these visions of companies that like, yes, we will dominate the market completely, but like they can't. I mean, it's just inevitable that you won't really achieve that. I mean, um, I don't know. You can control a lot of market share. I just think it's like the natural evolution of products. And I think that's why thinking about business allows you to see that like this is just only one stage of what probably would be multiple stages until whatever is it that we call books turns into. I, I just think that we won't even have ebooks in a few years. And it's just well, like, well, we will. Of course we will. We just won't call them. I mean, we may or may not call them ebooks and think of them as an analogs to print books. Yeah. But, I mean, of course we'll have long form text. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, and I think I like, hope so. That would be bad if we didn't. Yeah. I, I agree with you, but like, <laughs> like idiocracy bad. <laughs> Well, it's funny you say that because, you know, when I do, um, you know, when I do consulting work, like I invariably run into things I don't know what I'm doing. So I have to research it. And, you know, like you can go on the web and like learn how to do a particular type of regression analysis. But like there's no replacing having a book to look to to really reference. I mean, you can look at journal articles, but those aren't as useful as you think it is. Like sometimes you just need like some kind of established method that you're going to use and when google started having all these methods book that you could buy it was just so great for me you know because like oh i don't have to go to a library and just check out these books i can just read chapters um that google or whoever else has you know put on e-version and it was like it's different than just googling and looking for people's tips about how to do a particular regression analysis like you can go to wikipedia but like so it's it's not established enough. You're talking yourself out of your own point. You're the one saying we won't have books in 20 years. I'm just saying that there's an establishment uh, association with books, and I think that will become much more important. And I think like publishers or whatever we want to call those things, they will be just some kind of gatekeepers for some type of legitimacy, but not books. I mean, books is what we associate that legitimacy with, but it's like, listen, the internet is just destroying previous ideas of how we carry information but obviously we have a hierarchy of 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 information and like we just need to figure out a way or people need to figure out a way of making that making that into something that's coherent in the internet and like like libraries probably don't make any more sense and maybe universities having libraries probably doesn't make any more sense but we need some kind of gatekeeping mechanism um i just don't think will be like looking at wikipedia for information but that will be part of it but we just need some kind of service or institution sorry jesse you've been quiet are you still there yes yes i have been oh i'm still here i'm just so enthralled by your uh intellectual tete-a-tete that i didn't want to interrupt enthralled or slash bored uh well i just always think you're gone because you know you it, it happens why? Because I'm in some sort of different country, you no, racist? you cut out. You cut out earlier. And Arturo keeps cutting out. This has been a very fractured episode. No, it's true. Episode. I, um, yeah, I mean, I just haven't had something to interject. 
That's okay. I didn't mean to put you on the spot. And then you do go away. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we didn't hear that. Whatever you said, we didn't hear it. You cut out for a minute. Oh, I said, I'm on the spot. And I was about to launch into a point. Um, But, I mean, ultimately, I, I, I keep coming back to John's point that this is not our problem right? Like this is not, um, I mean, like I said, I've been thinking about this a lot lately and reading about it a lot lately. And one of the things I keep coming back to is DRM. Um, and the thing about DRM is like DRM really only punishes the legal consumer, right? Because people who are really pirating software and who are really like big into, you know, quota upon quote, stealing information and things like that, like they'll get around DRM. DRM is only a problem for guys like me who actually buy something and just want to move it to a different like piece of software and then can't because of DRM. Um, but so these sort of like the protections that the industry is trying to put on to try to figure out this new business model are only hurting the people who actually legally want to participate in their business model <laughs> and give them money. And and it's just like, it's so yeah. Regressive. I don't know what the word is that like they're they're just so desperately trying to avoid moving into the future, as John is pointing out, all these scenarios that would work, and the only sort of lack is the will. And they're so desperately trying not to move into these new models and are just so like sort of knee-jerk afraid of a different model that they're really only punishing the customers who are actually still giving them money. Yeah. It's like uh, you know, when you watch a DVD. I I can't stand watching DVDs anymore. You know, usually because like any DVD we own, I just copied and I keep it on my computer now, you know, and when you rent DVDs and you put them in, you, you know, you get the FBI warning that you have to wait through. And then there's the Interpol warning that you have to wait. Yeah, through. And you can't skip it. Yeah. But here's and here's the funny thing is that, you know, where I don't have to watch that any of the movies <laughs> that I actually get illegally because you yeah. cut it out. Yep. The only people forced to watch those warnings are the people who haven't done anything wrong. Yeah, anyone who's done anything wrong doesn't have to watch them and, and DRM's you know it's just DRM stupid because and, and it's all going to be breakable there's never going to be any foolproof DRM because if you sell me something and encrypt it you have to give me the key to decrypt it in order to listen to it so you can so most DRM is really just sort of obfuscating the way you do that and making it not obvious as opposed to actually a foolproof way of verifying that me and only me can ever listen to this ever like it's never going to get to the point where DRM can't be broken. That's why it always is. You know, that's why I can, you can break any. Precisely. And that was my point, right? Like why DRM only punishes like those who are actually doing it legally. Because if you want to pirate it, you can get around DRM. By definition, you are going to be able to get around DRM. But if you want to do it legally, then you have to put up with all of the BS that comes with DRM. That's pretty funny. So it's actually like it's a, it's a disincentive to do it legally because these companies so refuse to move into a new business model. I mean, it, it's almost like a, I mean, what I kind of think it's going to take is usually this is the case. Whenever you have an established industry that seems to be struggling and not not succeeding and transitioning from sort of one era to another, it's usually some other business that comes along. That, that solves these problems, right? Yeah. And I think what's depressing about eBooks is that like with, you know, with publishers, you can sort of say, okay, well maybe we need something. I think we need something. Like I, I, I do, I, you know, 
authors need to be paid, right? People aren't going to write books if there's, I mean, people actually, people probably I'll will write books. Point. People probably will write books they if will. there's no money in it. But I don't think we'll have the rich diversity and rich culture of books that we have, right? Um, so you need something. But, and you kind of think, well, publishers may not be figuring it out. So maybe someone else is going to come along and have the bright idea for how to make it work. And they'll just be a different business, right? But it's really hard to break into a huge business like publishing like that. And it's like, obviously, no one's doing it. The people that are breaking into it, like Amazon, they're, they're not coming in really as publishers. They're, they're doing something else, you know. And they're not necessarily offering a much better vision of how distributing books should work, you know. Um, so I don't know. It's, it's just a depressing situation. I, mean, I think the ultimate problem is we're still at that stage where everyone is treating digital media as if it were physical media. And it's just it it's it's like a cognitive inability to accept this new I don't know medium I, I don't know how to put this into cogent words so maybe I'll try this over but like they just continue to treat you know an ebook as if it were the same as a book when we've just spent all of this time detailing well, how an ebook only represents a book in that it's a large collection of words otherwise it's a completely distinct phenomenon. But the business model is still based around it being a physical book. And, and there's just this like inability to recognize this. And until someone truly recognizes it and deals with it, it's going to be this exact problem over and over. Actually, not only are they still thinking of it as a book, but they're like looking back at books and mistakes they made and trying to make it even more like books than books were, right? Um, so like the, the, the library lending thing, one of the other things I wanted to, uh, HarperCollins a couple months back, put out this policy where they were going to put a loan cap on ebooks. So like libraries wouldn't buy copies of ebooks anymore that had restrictions, right? Like I was just saying, like ebooks that could only be, you know, only so many people could have them checked out at once for such limited time, at which point they got returned. Like not even that they were, I think it was like 26 or um, yeah, 26 loan cap that they were going to put on. So basically libraries for popular books, were going to have to keep buying the book over and over and over again you know, forever. And if you care about libraries and you think libraries are a good thing, where, I mean, I guess this brings back to one of the other points we can talk about if we have the will and imagination is like what libraries look like and what the role of libraries are here. Like, that's just insane. Libraries aren't going to be able to keep, you know, I mean, name a, name like a classic, you know, popular book. Like libraries aren't going to be able to just continue to keep buying that every 26 times someone checks it out. That's just crazy. And they never yeah. had to do that with real books. Yeah. You know, they never had to do that. I mean, that's even more restrictive well, than... And I mean, I think the thing is this sort of like sky is falling rhetoric from, you know, whether it be, you know, the publishing industry, the music industry or whatever, like, oh, now that downloads are available, this will never work. And it's like public libraries have existed where you could get pretty much any book you want for free, those have existed for at least the majority of the last century, if not longer, right? And yet they were still able to sell books throughout that entire period of time, even though basically every city had a place where you could go and get that book for free, right? And and they But they refused to acknowledge that there's a way this could work digitally, mm-hmm. even though like, in the physical medium, it's clearly been proven that you can still sell books. You know, I mean, like the freaking Mona Lisa book or whatever, the that stupid movie with Tom Hanks, you know, like that sold whatever 80 billion books, even though you could get it for free at your library, right? Yeah, but people but, still bought yeah. it. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think it's not. I mean, there's an easy argument that ebooks are more threatening than that, though. I mean, at a, at the public library, yeah, that's true, but you have to go to the library to get it. You might not. Be, you might be on a wait list for a popular book for like a couple of weeks or months before you can get the actual book, and then you got to read it really fast because you got to return it. You know, within you know three weeks or whatever. And at ebooks, on the other hand, yeah, but uh, you know, I can email I mean, you an ebook. A- you can have there's a cost involved. Like I got to download the ebook. You know, if I want to steal it, I got to find a torrent. Like the costs are not the same, but I mean, there's still, there's still a matter there, right? Like there's still, it's not perfectly convenient. Like I don't just will it into being and it happens. I still have to take action, right? <laughs> there's still, it's different, but there's still world's laziest software do, pirate right, right here. <laughs> Well, I'm saying that, but that's my point, right? That's how they no, that's... treat it. They act as if, like, yeah, I yeah, just yeah, yeah, imagine yeah. I want every album ever created and it's there. And like, this is... I still have to do things. And this is actually brings us back to the music example, too, is that this is why iTunes worked, right? Is that it is true. Like, I remember when I was uh, an undergrad, this was like the heyday of Napster. Right. Do you guys were you good? Do you guys remember yeah. this? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you could literally go to Napster and type in anything obscure stuff and you'd get it. It was crazy. But, um, you know, sometimes you didn't get the whole song or the quality was just terrible, you know, and you couldn't get a whole album like that was a giant pain. And, you know, Apple came along and said, here, 99 cents a track, download it. It's going to be a good. Well, the quality's gotten better (laughs) it's gonna be a decent quality it you know it's it's legal you can feel like you're supporting artists you know and what do you know people did it you know by making it easy and painless and ebooks are not necessarily easy and painless yet i mean they are if you have if you live within that like if you have an amazon kindle it's great you can browse the kindle store on the kindle and buy a book right so which i've done this like i've been in an airport and had finished my book and needed something to read and bought a book right there. And it was right there, delivered on the Kindle. It was great. Until I lose that Kindle and want to buy something else. Or, you know, like I was saying earlier. Like, they made it easy, but there's there's still some pretty big missing pieces of it. Like, what if the book you want isn't available for Amazon Kindle, but it's available at your library? But your library doesn't support the Kindle yet. Or what if it's available on some other uh, Barnes & Noble store, but you can't buy it because you don't have a Nook, and you don't want to go buy another $200 ebook reader just because you want to read that book, do you? You know, it's still difficult. It's still easier to say, eh, I'll just go look for it online and probably find a copy of it that's good enough. You know? It just, it's, you know... It, it's and i don't know maybe exactly. it... like there was i mean uh, an article i was reading about this stuff there was um the ipad made an app where you could watch any television show <laughs> an ipad like... made its own app the machines are recreating okay. themselves <laughs> Shit. i hate you Skynet in so is... many ways right now <laughs> it's so come alive was an ipad app there was an application that somebody somewhere somehow made that was available upon the ipad tablet they're reproducing does this please you john have i used the correct terminology what, what, what did the application do yes sorry the point is, set application, um, it was like Time Warner Cable or something was behind this app. And you could watch any of the shows that if you had their cable, you could watch any of their shows on your iPad in real time. Like you couldn't tape it. You couldn't record it. You couldn't pause it. You could watch it in real time on your iPad. As long as you were inside your house, it wouldn't work inside your house. It wouldn't work anywhere else. It, it was essentially just another TV upon which you could watch the programming you already paid for. But then several of the channels 
offered through Time Warner nixed it immediately and said like, no, you don't have the right to offer our content in that way. Even though all that would do is be a positive for them, right? You still had to watch the commercials that pay their bills. You still had to pay for the cable licensing that pays them. You couldn't watch it outside of your house. Like I said, you couldn't record it. There was nothing about it that was different than just like hooking up another TV, but they instantly nixed it because they didn't have complete control over this, even though in the long run, clearly something that would have benefited them. And it's just, I think that's like such a, a pristine example of the sort of backward thinking of like the major conglomerates towards these new models offered by electronic media yeah. that if they can't if they can't not only capitalize but control in every possible way that digital media they're just not even going to bother with it and, and it's only killing them because that is exactly what drives you to download it like it's so much more onerous if you or i was thinking another great example is here um in iraq Right. Like we can't watch American television online because it's not supported in the Middle East. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I actually have a friend here, uh, another American who has a Hulu subscription, like pays money to Hulu uh, and can't watch it. But if you download like one of those sort of illegal site mirroring programs, then you can watch it for free through the network. Um, but so like you can't legally like she pays money to watch it but can't watch it that way but can watch it illegally and it's far more convenient to watch it illegally and it's only because they have these weird you know licensing blah dee blah dee da i don't really understand the business model but like you're just making it far more convenient to use your product illegally than to actually give you money for your product hulu's in an interesting position there because that's not hulu's i mean I think if you talk to the people who run Hulu, they would agree with you because Hulu actually has this very contentious history with the industries is that they're cl they're they're basically uh, I forget one of the big studios owns them now or maybe always have. But uh, NBC Universal, yeah, I believe. but like uh, if it were like, like the people who run Hulu anyway, like get this, but then they've got all these weird restrictions that they place on things like the reason you can't watch Hulu on an iPad without having the Hulu Plus subscription um, or the reason that, uh, it's, it's because they have this weird thing where they don't want you to watch it on a TV. Right. So like I have boxy, which I have, a, I have a computer hooked up to my TV and it runs boxy, this software that is built to turn your PC sort of into a media center thing to hook up to a TV and sure. Hulu and boxy. have always had this back and forth because boxy is just a computer software on your computer. It just opens up a web browser and views Hulu. Right. But uh, they're all Boxy key, or Hulu keeps coming up with ways to trick Boxy or Hulu keeps coming up with ways to circumvent Boxy's ability to do this. And it's crazy because on the same computer, I can open up a web browser and watch it just fine. But I it's can't like watch we it. don't want you to use a TV yes, it's because too much because, like a TV because their their deal with all the studios is that we will provide an ability for people to watch your content on their computers not on and their television. And we won't steal your yes. viewership. Yes, because they would much rather have you watch it on TV because they still yeah. make way more money off television advertising than the dinky little advertising revenue they get from being on Hulu, right? Oh, interesting. Um, which, of course, is crazy because that dinky little revenue on Hulu now will be more in a year and more in another year. And eventually, like we all say, we see where this is going. So yeah. they need, you know, but the shows that, you know, and then there are some shows that just aren't available online at all, you know. It's or or they're they're not available on who you know it's I mean that's the point I'm trying to make about there it's like this weird um, 
sort of Luddite-ism, ironically, from major corporations, that like it, there are clearly ways in which they could profit off this business model, or at least explore ways they could profit off of digital media, but they like steadfastly refuse and instead try to clamp down on piracy, which, as I've angrily noted already many times, only pushes people further into piracy. Um, and I had a much more eloquent point when I started that sentence, but essentially it's like their own, I mean, it's just this like humorous obstinance that is like clearly, I mean, they're, they're killing themselves in this business model. And like you mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, like continually demanding from us to tell them their new business model. Yeah, I kind of get that now, actually. I, I, I guess the point you're saying is like maybe certain industries just aren't meant to exist anymore. And, you know, putting yes. the onus of responsibility on us to figure out how can we still give you money even exactly. though you're not really going to do anything. Exactly. It's like kind of weird. Like that, that makes sense. Like maybe like TV as we know it, while it was great and it costs a lot of money and now there's a new way for us to get the same content, we shouldn't have to like – figure out a way some results to still give you money <laughs> yes. even though we want to watch it over the it's, internet it's i would big. actually go i would actually go a little bit beyond that i wouldn't say that it's these industries shouldn't exist anymore but i would say these industries refuse to figure out a way to continue to exist and then demand that we figure out it's, a way to give them money it's the irony is that it's these big businesses that that like lobby government to decrease regulation and for all these ostensibly free market reforms when really what they're doing is is they're they're arguing for anti-market protection right yeah because they're scared of the free market because the free market is going opposed to what they want right so all of these things they're putting in place are ways of just sort of crawling and scratching you know scratching and crawling their way to protect their turf because it's like slipping out from underneath them and it's the market that's doing that you know so they they try to make it illegal to 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 violate their business to do things that they don't want you to do and they you know exert all these controls over you know who can watch what and who can do what with what they're selling and and ultimately it's like it's it's what happens is that you have companies that become successful and become very big and then they're not they're not like really for the free market anymore because the free market you know they're for protecting what they what they are and protecting their right to maintain their status as a big successful profitable corporation and yet it's uh so you know and then they're they're they they buy politicians who don't want to pay who who campaign on free markets and no taxes and then they just basically lobby those politicians to enact laws that protect their existing business models you know uh and then John, people get confused into thinking that this is this is free market and business friendly as if business you know is yeah john i feel like you've just usurped my position as the radical on this podcast yeah, it know, just took us talking about technology to get but, you there but what's radical about that though i'm crazy I'm, I'm actually i'm actually making the free market argument here if you think about it, this, the, the actual free market argument is that just because you were successful for a certain period of time, because the market was aligned in such a way that the product you sold was worth a lot to people, just because you were successful then doesn't give you any right, uh, you know, to, to, to restructure the way we do everything to suit you today, right? Like, these companies, they're losing their business model because times are changing. It's not our problem. They're, we're under no obligation to keep them going. They should have been planning for this, you know? 
getting, you're getting a little radical for my taste there, man. <laughs> what has Iraq done to you, man? It's made you soft. It's true, dude.